I would love to have you take your Bibles. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And then the sermon notes in your bulletin, you'll want to have those nearby as well. Uh, That will help you uh, make sense of what we're doing this morning. But Mark chapter 9, we'll be looking at a larger section from the Bible today, Mark 9, 1 to 32. And I'll, I'll tell you a bit about that as we, as we head in here. Uh, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. As a church, we routinely, not always, but routinely uh, work our way through and study and preaching different books of the Bible. And of course, the Gospel of Mark is one of the four, we call them Gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often called the synoptic Gospels, the word itself meaning a similar look. Uh, a unified look. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke typically, uh, very similarly, uh, present uh, the the picture of Jesus. That's especially true today. Our whole preaching text is laid out very similarly in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. The whole thing uh, is is very similarly presented by all three of those gospel writers. Not true with every text in Mark, but it's true of today's text. And I'll mention some of those things as we go along. But this is an important study because we're looking at Jesus. And about every three or four years, we, we, we preach through one of the gospels because as a church, we never want to get too far away from the story of Jesus, the main feature in the whole Bible. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What's true of him? And how can we know him? So that's, that's really the journey that we're on in the Gospel of Mark. So several other things I will say to you uh, about Mark in, in, in a bit and some of those other notes. But uh, I'm going to make a comment on a book. Then we'll pray together. And off we go. Uh, when we started our study of Mark, I brought eight books, I think that the staff was going to be using as, as resources for this study. And I want to mention one of those today. Uh, this is a, 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 it's a biblical theology. It says a biblical theology of the New Testament, a theology of Mark's, Mark's gospel. It is a, it is a genre of, of Bible study. Systematic theology is one. Biblical theology is another discipline in the study of theology. So this is that. And what that means is that this book is built on tracing certain themes through the gospel of Mark. So for example, uh, there's a whole chapter on um, the secrecy motifs. As we've studied Mark, some of you have asked, uh, why does Jesus keep saying after healing somebody or something big, don't tell anyone? What's that about? Well, in a biblical theology text, there's a whole chapter on that. So he says, you want to talk about that? I'll talk about that. And he talks about every instance of that kind of a statement in the whole gospel of Mark. And then he talks about Mark's theology of discipleship and, and atonement and salvation and so on. But for us today, and the reason I mention all of this, is in the chapter called the enacted Christology in Mark. There's a little paragraph I'm going to read. Now, I've mentioned enacted Christology. It's a fancy theological word for saying this. Mark doesn't just tell you who Jesus is. He wants to show you. So he lays out story after story, including those that leave people saying, who is this? As we saw in Mark 4, who is this? And Mark doesn't answer. He didn't tell you. Okay, he's, it's like he's acting it out and he's waiting for you to say, oh, I see. 
So in this chapter, he says this, and this will lead us to the text. Uh, So he says, uh, the transfiguration, which is the text we're heading into here, this marks a major transition in the gospel. That is, in this, this story of Jesus. He says this, the twin stories of Peter's confession, last week's text, and the transfiguration, today's text, these two, he says, together function as the turning point in the gospel, and they serve in a manner that enables the reader to see the author's true intention, and he mentions two, okay? The identity of Jesus and the significance of that reality to his followers. So, so this writer in this whole story of the enacted Christology of Mark, he says what for us was last week's text and today's. He says together, these form a crucial pivot point in our study. So whereas before Mark was asking the question, who is this with the words of the disciples? Now he's going to be answering that. Last week's text, Peter's big confession, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And we saw last week, he said that, but he didn't get it. They had a big misunderstanding about what Messiah was about. Well, today, we're going to get a glimpse into, I call it, a glimpse into heaven and into the future. There's a glimpse of glory that shows us Jesus' true identity. It also gives us a glimpse into, well, what we would call heaven. Uh, what, is, what is true of life after this one? So there's a lot going on in today's text. That's the journey we get to take. I'm glad you're here. And if you like um, more academic reads, here's 600 and some pages worth that you might enjoy. Um, if that isn't you, don't do it. Don't do it. But, but you, you know who you are. And uh, some of you would, would enjoy a study like that. I want to pray for us, and we will step into the text this morning. Join me in this. Our Father, it is with great delight that we open the Word of God together. Thank you for this privilege that is ours as a church family, week after week and throughout the morning, as this room uh, fills and empties and fills and empties again. Uh, Thank you that we can open the Scriptures together and hear meet not just material or information, but you, the living God, who has given us the Scriptures. So thank you for this. Thank you for telling us the story of Jesus, all of this guided by the work of the Spirit of God among us. And we long for that today, that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to love the Scriptures and to love you, the God who has given it, that Christ would be honored in us. Thank you for your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. And of course, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't greet those joining us online or in the other room. Glad you're with us from across this community, the state, and the country, and around the world. Uh, I heard from one of my contacts around the world just recently, uh, last Wednesday morning, as we met um, by Zoom. He said, I've been to your website, and I was looking up what you all did on this text for my preaching. And I just thought, how cool that ministry here uh, then echoes some months later elsewhere. Grateful. Mark chapter 9 1 to 32. As always, your sermon notes are laid out with some elements of review for you uh, to bring us up to speed together. And then uh, a little paragraph called today's text that I will let you take a look at as well. Uh, Before I read the text, I'd like to look at the notes with you because I think if you see where I'm headed, it will make more sense as I read the text. 
Okay, so there are three headings, each of which goes with a, a certain amount of material in Mark chapter 9. So I'm going to spend more of my time in the first section. I think it will make sense, as I do, though it isn't the longest section. But verses 1 to 13 would be this moment of glory, I call it, a moment of glory but incomplete sight. It's the, what we call the transfiguration of Jesus and the accompanying dialogue. Then, in verses 14 to 29, once again you meet a situation of great need. A father who brings a son who's had a problem since childhood. We're not told how old the boy is, but this is a big deal. And he's bringing his son saying, if you can help, I'd appreciate it. So this, there's a moment, and I call it a need for healing, but incomplete faith. So I think, I think this whole section, verses 1 to 32, there's, there are things in each story that are incomplete. So incomplete sight, they don't really see it. Here, incomplete faith, not only from the Father, but from the crowd and the disciples. And then finally, verses 30 to 32, small section, it's the second of Jesus' warnings you remember I mentioned that uh, the, the first part of Mark, Jesus doesn't say much about his suffering and death. But now in this unit, as he heads toward Jerusalem, we're just in this transition part uh, that's going to conclude with Jesus at Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and die for our sins. Okay, But in that journey, three times he says, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And you remember each time the disciples go, what do you mean? What do you mean? How can that be? We've got a Messiah, Savior. He's taken over the place, right? Come on, Jesus, buck up. And each time, as I put here, there's a call to suffering, but incomplete understanding, and they do it again. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I think the whole text has incomplete elements through it. So a moment of glory, a need for healing, a call to suffering. And you watch for those elements as I read. I'm going to read the whole 32 verses all at once and then make comments as you see laid out here that I think will be instructive for us. So God's word then as I read Mark 9, 1 to 32. We read this. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. That's the inner circle, really. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, metamorphosized, if you will. Transfigured before them, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one or no launderer on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Moses, or sorry, Elijah with Moses. Interesting. Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. There it is again. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? First, Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And 
How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So he kind of asked them, what's that all about? But I tell you, he says, that Elijah has come. John the Baptist, by the way, they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask. Isn't that great? Well, at least nobody said anything foolish. Let's say that they didn't know what to say. So they didn't. Wow. What a great model. Well, I, (laughs) I, more on that. I'd like, to, I'd like to move through the text then under those three headings. And uh, of course, the first, this what we call the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, I, a comment or two on verse one, I mentioned last week that there's some academic discussion about whether verse one belongs properly with the text preceding or with the text that follows. And um, I, I don't like to spend major time on minor things. I take it as a prelude to what follows. Um, I quickly acknowledge with those who say, yeah, but I mean, the kingdom of God after it's come with power, is that what we're going to see? Doesn't Jesus have more in mind? Aren't we talking here about the, the full story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? There's kingdom of God with power. Or, or even looking ahead to the, the Romans wiping out uh, the, 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 Ju- Jerusalem and then Masada 70 and 73 AD, and that's God's judgment. Or maybe in the eschaton, the future, maybe it's that. But then you look at those standing here. 
And I, as I put on your sermon notes here, I take it perhaps with Jesus had more in mind, uh, but he at least has what's following in mind. And let's not undersell what follows. Perhaps some in this academic discussion look at what follows this transfiguration and go, yeah, that's not the kingdom of God with power. That's just, you know, a little, uh, you know, change of dress here or something. And I say, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Let's not undersell what this is. This is a glimpse. It's a real glimpse of a real future for God's people. So let's not pretend it's just some little dress rehearsal, like a little moment, a clothing change or something. No, no. This is a glimpse of the future. It is a glimpse into God's coming kingdom. And I would suggest there's a bit of power there as say, you know, I don't know, Moses and Elijah show up. That's kind of cool. So that's all I'm going to do with that academic part. But I take it at least as an introduction to what follows. Now, I, I look with you at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with, took with him Peter, James, and John. You're familiar with the, the reality that in the Gospels, there are a whole lot of disciples of Jesus, people who were followers of his. Then there's the 12 that travel with him everywhere, those 12 that he chose. From those 12, there are three that are closer to him. Now, we're never really told, uh, given hints here and there, a little bit of jealousy, intertribal jealousy. Jesus routinely says, hey, I need some guy. Peter, James, and John, come with me, which means he leaves nine. And th- that's because he's Jesus and he can do that. Peter, James, and John. And of those three, of course, John in the Gospel of John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved like his closest friend. So interesting that Jesus uh, had those kinds of relationships and friendships. But here he takes Peter, James, and John. Now, interesting, I put this under your second bullet point here, hints of Exodus 24, 16. Here's, here's something for you to, to put into your Bible study, um, uh, you know, your, your wardrobe, put this into your Bible study kit. Um, the New Testament and Old Testament are a unit. Oh, I know they're separate. I got it. And, and it, it, I understand the differences between the two. But the, but the Old Testament lays the groundwork for the new. And over and over again, when you're reading the New Testament, if you're paying attention, which I would urge you to do, you'll see hints of things from the Old Testament. Not only fulfillments of Scripture, but, for example, in the Bible, two major redemptive events. The Exodus and the work of Jesus on the cross. The first foreshadowing the second People in bondage, needing redemption, needing a savior, needing a deliverer. Uh, The blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb. So the Old Testament laying the groundwork, all these like, like directional signs pointing. And the one they're pointing to is Jesus. Sabbath itself. Who is our Sabbath rest? Jesus is our Sabbath rest. When we trust Christ as our Savior, it's fulfilling Sabbath. You enter into Sabbath rest, according to Hebrews 4. So, here, there are Bible scholars who go like this. Exodus 24, a mountain, a display of God's glory. Moses, a moment of revelation. Six days, huh? And they look at this text and say, is this a, is this a retelling, a, a revisiting, a recapitulation? Is this fulfilling, so to speak, what you saw a hint of in Exodus 24? You don't see it in Exodus 24. There's going to be another day like this. But you read the story of the transfiguration. And again, some scholars look at this and go, huh, sounds a lot like that. 
And it wouldn't surprise me because over and over again, you see this. As you read the New Testament, you say, that's like this. So pay attention to those things. I think it's instructive. And of course, it points to the one author of the whole Bible who weaves together intricacies and stories for us. Now, Jesus leads them up on a high mountain. This is, this is verse 2 and is metamorphosized, transfigured before them. And you can appreciate Mark's attempt to describe this, to describe with words that fit here something that doesn't fit here. That's what he's trying to do. He says, Mark says of Jesus, of course, Peter retelling his story, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one or no launderer on earth could bleach them. Now, again, I mentioned um, Matthew and Luke also tell the same story. They try as well to put words to this. Matthew mentions that Jesus' face shone like the sun. So, so white, glory, um, brightness, his face, and, and, and Moses and Elijah. So this is an attempt to describe in language here what belongs in another place. A, a moment of glory. I think it is indeed a glimpse into heaven and a glimpse into the future. And I, it, we'll talk about a little more of that at the end of, of our, our main study time here. But I don't want you to forget this moment. Something otherworldly is going on. And Peter, James, and John, we read, are terrified. Verse 6. You better believe it. This is not something they're used to seeing. This is out of this world. And now... I go to my next bullet point on the uh, top of the next page. The disciples know who Moses and Elijah are. I know. People ask me this. People have already asked me. Somebody asked me this last week uh, because they were looking ahead to today. How do you think they knew who Moses and Elijah were? I mean, monogrammed robes, um, name tags, as I suggest. Is that it? Are we going to have name tags in heaven? We're walking around saying, I'm Barnabas. Oh, Barnabas. I never would have known. Are we going to spend eternity walking up and saying, hi, and I'm so-and-so. What's your name? No kidding. You're, you're, you know, you're Ezekiel. Who knew? Is, Is that it? How do we know? Well, I'm going to provide you conjecture. Okay? And you can have this. Don't, don't, you know, meet me in the parking lot about this. I, I do not have this vested anywhere. I'll give you a guess. I'll hazard a guess. Okay? Here you go. I, I wonder if at that moment it's a glimpse into the reality of heaven, because it is that, and I suspect it in heaven, you'll know you'll know. That's what I suspect. I suspect that I base this in some level, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, then we'll know fully as now we're fully known. I just suspect that we're not going to run around heaven forever with name tags or monogrammed robes or, or introducing ourselves to everybody. I think, I think we'll know things. And I suspect nobody had to say, Peter, James, and John, the guy on the left, Mo. Guy on the right, I don't think they had to, I think they knew. Now, some would suggest when they came down the mountain, they had other conversation. It's a journey. So they might have asked, and Jesus said, oh, yeah, the, the, you know, tall blonde guy or tall dark skin. Yeah, that was, I, I don't know about that. I'm just suggesting for your thought. Because this is an inbreaking of God's kingdom, of course, Jesus represents an inbreaking of God's kingdom, but this little slice, this is a moment of glory. And I'm suggesting to you to think about that at that moment they knew because they were there. 
And so I don't know that. I can't prove it. It's what I think. It's what I think about that. So you can do what you like. But I don't think they were wearing name tags. Um, I'm not so sure on the monogrammed robes. But I think that when we're there in God's kingdom, with him, fully whole and fully, well, fully alive, I think that knowing certain things like that goes with the territory. More on that in just a bit. Now, why Moses with Elijah? And that's really what the text says in verse 4. It's not just Elijah and Moses. It's Elijah with Moses. It has a with. So what is that about? There's a lot of conjecture. A lot of pages have been written talking about these two. Moses with Elijah. Elijah with. What is the with about? And some have suggested that these two are here. I mean, as a, why not Daniel? Why not Ezekiel? Why not somebody else? Well, some have suggested um, the connection with the law and the prophets. Others have written equally forcefully to say, that's not it at all. Um, that's the beauty of people who have a lot of time on their hands, is you can offer a lot of conjecture on things. Um, I, I think there could be something to say about the law and the prophets. I mean, you think about this. Moses, uh, being that author of, of the first five books, the Pentateuch, um, the law, certainly, Exodus, the great deliverer, the one who was used by God in the first great redemptive event, meeting with the one who was the chief author of the second great redemptive event, fulfilling the first. I mean, Moses makes a lot of sense. Uh, Moses says, there's going to be another prophet rise greater than me. I think Moses, people struggle with Elijah a bit. They say, but he wasn't a writing prophet. You know, Ezekiel wrote, Isaiah wrote, and I say, I know that, I got it, but I don't know for sure, but he was certainly one of the most revered figures, and it will, somebody will be quick to point out, Elijah went to heaven without dying, didn't he? Huh. Now, Moses, Deuteronomy 34, his death is described. You remember what, what God forbade him to do at the end of his life? Yeah, going to the promised land. Where is he now? Yeah, he is, isn't he? Um, someone will surely have noticed this, that at this moment, even after his, we would say after his death, of course, he's very much alive, just in another place. But someone will be quick to point out that even then he fulfills something that he had long wanted. And that is set foot in the promised land. And indeed he does. Moses and Elijah, uh, is it Malachi 4, 4 to 6? Is that what this is? If you read those texts, and you might before your community group, if you're in one, you'll notice that as the Old Testament canon closes, Moses and Elijah are the last word. Uh, the words of Moses, and then behold, I'm going to send you Elijah. Um, uh, that's how, turn the hearts of the father's children, children to the fathers before the coming of the, the day of the Lord. Malachi 4, that's how the Old Testament canon closes, is with references to Moses and Elijah. Is that why they're here at this moment? Well, I don't know this, but I want to press on this. Uh, I have this on your notes. Luke's gospel gives us a detail that the other two don't. And I think this is really worth thinking about. Luke's gospel tells us that Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were there to talk to him about the journey he was on and its destination. Now, what they said, we don't know, but that was the topic of their conversation. Moses, Elijah, 
that was that a moment where in the glory of God's presence, that, that at that moment, God the Father says, hey, Moses, Elijah, I have a journey for you. Go down and meet with Jesus, Messiah, Savior. Strengthen him for his journey. Or are they giving him details? We're not sure, but I find it very interesting that at that moment, you guys think about this with me, um, Jesus meets with them. I think it's on purpose. It isn't just a little, you know, uh, random event. And then Moses and Elijah leave, and Jesus now walks the road, I'm going to say, alone. You're going to say, but his disciples, yeah, 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 I I got it. Um, Have you ever been with a crowd and been alone? You know what I mean? Even friends are, sometimes we walk a journey that you can't share. And you can have people with you who try to understand, but can't. And there's a journey you walk alone. And I wonder that. I just think that's a very profound part of this text. Moses and Elijah, Jesus, here's where you're going, heading up to Jerusalem. There, there you will suffer and die. This great moment of redemption upon which all of human history uh, focuses ultimately. That's the moment. And then they get to leave and Jesus walks the road. I just find it so profound. He's heading down that path with disciples who don't really understand and off they go. Well, you can, you can mull over Elijah with Moses, Moses with Elijah, what all that's about. Now, I, I have to move here to Peter. Uh, poor Peter. Uh, I know, Peter's a favorite whipping boy, isn't he? People get all over Peter all the time. Says, he says these random comments, says here, you know, he doesn't know what to say. So that's what he says. Some of you have the wonderful skill that when you don't know what to say, you shut your mouth. Good for you. Maintain that skill. If you do not have that skill, may I just suggest work on it. Okay? It's wonderful. You'll have less crow to eat eventually. If you're not sure what to say, or you think what you're going to say is going to sound wrong or come across, just, what is it? Was it Thumper? Yeah. See, we're on the same page. Bambi. If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. Yeah, that's Thumper in Bambi. Uh, Well, so here, Peter, you might say, hey, Peter, if you're not sure what to say, don't say nothing at all. Well, okay, he missed that part, and I offer that as a a mild reminder to all of us, because I think uh, controlling our words is a a wonderful thing um, and a skill to develop. And uh, Proverbs say a lot about our words a whole lot about our words and what happens if we do not restrain them. Well, Peter then, uh, he says in verse 5, and of course much criticized, Rabbi, it's good that you're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And people are, I know, pup tents, people get all over this and go, oh, Peter, what a dumb thing to say. Yeah, I understand. But, but I offer here a thought, specifically Peter's invitation for these big name guys to stick around fits with his expectation, the disciples' expectation, that the kingdom of God is going to come now. I mean, think about this. If, if Jesus is going to start this cool revolution and throw out the Romans, um, take over the place and become king, having him all of a sudden in blazing white with two sidekicks, also in blazing white, throw a sword on that. Let's go to Jerusalem. This is going to be great. I mean, he doesn't know they're not going to stay very long, but here they are. I mean, I, he's poking Peter and John. And go, I'm terrified, but this is, this is great. What a cool start to the revolution. They say you want a revolution. Here it is. A couple of guys uh, joining Jesus all blazing white. Yes. 
we can take over the place with this. Well, maybe Peter, maybe he has in mind, you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament feast, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, maybe he's thinking something like this. Let's set up some kind of a way for them to hang out. Well, you can blame him all you like and say he doesn't know what he's talking about, but there may be something to what he's saying. It does reflect his worldview, I think, about Messiah. Well, easy on Peter, by the way. I try to be easy on Peter because many of us are like him. So careful who you whip on. Now, a cloud. The cloud overshadows him, a voice from the cloud. This is reminiscent of the heavenly voice, the voice of the Father, speaking from heaven in chapter 1, verse 11, at the baptism of Jesus. Note one significant difference. In chapter 1, verse 11, God the Father speaks to Jesus. Here he speaks about him. Those two moments when the voice of the Father interject into human society, the beginning of Jesus' journey, and now the journey to Jerusalem. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then here, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And of course, I find myself thinking, is that a general call? Like, listen to him in general? Or is it specific? We're not told. Is there a specific thing you want us to listen to? Is it a look ahead to what he's going to say in verses 31 and 32? Listen to him when he tells you about his future. Is that the idea? We're not really told in the text, but the the call of God the Father, this is a very Trinitarian setting, of course, as is chapter 1, verse 11. This is my beloved Son, the Father speaking from heaven of the uh, God in the flesh, the Son. Listen to him, and suddenly, Jesus only. The discussion on the way back, I have this listed on your sermon notes there, three elements, three movements in that little discussion. Uh, Tell no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And then them puzzling over, what do you mean rising from the dead? Do you understand why verse 10 is a thing? It goes back to Peter saying, forbid it, you know, God forbid that you should suffer, Jesus. It's it's that. Um, What does rising from the dead mean? Well, it only makes sense if you have died. And the Messiah is not supposed to die. We're back to that again. And they're busy going, rise from the dead, rise from the dead. What do you mean rise from the dead? How can, how can you rise from the dead? You'd have to be dead. You can't rise from the dead. I suspect that's verse 10. I don't get this. Peter, you get this? No, he can't die. I mean, he's not going to die. He's a Messiah. I think that's what's going on in verse 10. Interesting. It's very similar. Verses 9 and 10 and verse 31. So down they go, rising from the dead. Jesus then, this interest, you could, you, there's a lot in verses 12 and 13. Elijah, certainly looking at John the Baptist. I think a hint of Isaiah 53, the suffering element. He must, he must, he should suffer. Uh, Luke 24, uh, Jesus with the disciples rode to Emmaus. The, disciple, the Christ must suffer the necessity of suffering. I think it's a look toward Isaiah 53. And then, of course, the Son of Man. Uh, I mentioned that. That's a phrase from Daniel 7. If you're wondering why Jesus refers to himself as the son of man instead of son of God, it is from Daniel. It's the book of Daniel where this godlike figure is presented. He's called the son of man, clearly God in the flesh. And so Jesus says the son of man. His hearers quickly go, you're identifying with the figure in Daniel. What's that about? So that's, that's why he's called the son of man repeatedly. It's a look to the book of Daniel. 
Okay, I told you I was going to spend most of our time in that first story. We will go faster from here. But there was a reason why I wanted to do that. I wanted to establish the the glory moment and the incomplete. They don't see. They just don't see. Now, quickly then, into 14 to 29, this big story. I hope you captured it as I read. They come down from the mountaintop quickly. Life returns to normal, meaning controversy and needy people and a great crowd. And I can just imagine the, the guys coming down off the mountaintop saying, can we turn right back around and go back up to that mountain? This is like you coming back from vacation or something else fun where you come back and you go, oh my goodness, the laundry and the food, we got to go shopping, we're out of milk, and somebody just threw up in the car. This is just, can we just go back? It was so good on the beach. Well, here you are, I suspect, coming down on the mountain and there's a crowd and there's controversy and then his poor disciples can't figure it out. And I can just imagine Jesus, Peter, James, and John going, oh my goodness, here we go, here we go again. I think it is that. Um, An urgent need, then. There's controversy. The scribes are arguing. The people are amazed. We're not told why in verse 15, are we? Why do you mean the people are amazed? Why are they amazed? You can think about these things. These are good questions to ask the text. Why? wonder why they're amazed. So Jesus says, what's the argument about? There's arguing going on. And you're face to face with this father who says, Jesus, teacher, I've got a son with a critical medical need. He's had this since he was a child. And right away, I know we're stepping into some of y'all's lives. Because medical needs are not child's play, especially if they involve a child. So you can picture this man who is desperate. He's been, I suspect, to every healer, every doctor, you know, this side of Jerusalem. We're still up north. Still in the north part, on the way down to Jerusalem. He's been to every doctor, every healer, probably lined up with a quack or two. You know, just anything. Can you help? He's doing what you would do to say, find someone. And here he is. And so far, no help. And, and, And he describes what many would look at and say, this is epilepsy. And perhaps so. I would like you please to look at my, my very brief comment, second bullet point under that heading. A couple of key things I would like you to see. I would suggest here that this may be a situation involving both an identifiable medical need and the work of a demon. And, I said. I'm not really sure. I can't say that for sure. But what's described here sure sounds like epilepsy, but there's sure a a very clear indication that there's an evil spirit involved. But my note here is really important for you. Please do not read by this then any hint in the Bible that all medical needs are the work of Satan. Some poorly taught people make those extrapolations. And I mean that very kindly. That is not what the Bible teaches, that every medical need is the work of the devil and needs an exorcism. So don't hear that, please. So however you read this text, do not read here, oh, skip the doctor. Got a demon here. Now, now, hold on, tiger. Nor let, should you let anybody else tell you the same. There are whole cults built on this, okay? That is not the whole story of the Bible. People take a text like this, and once one story becomes uh, the guiding story for everything, you can run yourself into a lot of problems. Clearly, it's a demon's fault. Well, let's just hold on to that. But, But some of you, some of us, some of me, who have ever been present for a grand mal seizure, have some idea how terrifying this is. 
Um, I, I find myself, uh, my emotion quickly roused when I get to verse 27, uh, 26, where Jesus has cast out this evil spirit and healed this boy, and he is like a corpse. I am not a doctor, but I know what the post-ictal state looks like, and it looks like they're dead. And it's not good, and it's awful. And you, as the caregiver at that moment, find, you're saying, find yourself saying, dear God, not now. Not now. So I get this. I get this moment. And I get the impact of verse 26. People saying it looks like a corpse. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And the touch of the master that's needed. Like in 822, Jesus takes the guy by the hand, the, 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 the blind man in the previous text. So here, Jesus takes the boy by the hand and lifts him up. The touch of the healer. So, so yes, this is, this is the work of God, but, but in terms of its main instructive power, okay, I love, I love the dialogue in 22 to 24. This is us. This is you. If you can do anything, can you identify with this man? You ever prayed something like this? Probably some of you have. God, if there's any way possible for you to fix that, I'd sure appreciate it. If you can. Now, what is the tone of voice with which Jesus responds? Do you know? Because I don't. Uh, My Bible reading app, I think, has the wrong emphasis. Uh, I think the Bible reading app I have, I think, has Jesus almost indignant here. What do you mean if you can? I'm not sure that's the moment here. Uh, the compassionate heart of Jesus, I don't think, is going to be sarcastic with this man in his desperate need. I, I think this is a moment of joy. If you can, I can just picture Jesus' mind thinking, I- I'm the one who said, let there be light. I'm the one who said in the beginning, God created the heavens. I was God's agent at creation. I'm the one who said, fill the universe with stars. Oh, yeah. What do you mean? If I can? Oh, buddy, just wait. And maybe Jesus just brimming with the light, knowing what he's about to do. I don't think Jesus is huffy here. Um, I, I just don't see it. I think Jesus can hardly wait. As he sees the desperate look and says, 30 seconds from now, you're going to be dancing, brother. I, I think that's what's going on. If you can, oh, buddy, here comes. All things are possible to him who believes. And then the man cries out. And it is a cry. The terms that are used to indicate a, this is that guttural, um, desperate. Um, if you're a parent, you know. I do believe, but help that huge part of me that doesn't. I've got faith the size of a thimble, and I need a bucket right here. And I don't have a bucket of faith. I've got a thimble, and God, that's all I have. So here, here it is. I'm bringing it to you. And please do something with my little itty-bitty faith. Help my unbelief. You ever prayed that? I bet you have, as have I. Lord, I do trust you. I do. I do. I do. But help that part of me that doesn't. Help the part of me that doubts. Help the part of me that thinks I know better. Help the part of me that, that just ah, holds back. I do believe. Help my unbelief. What a, what a wonderful moment. And listen, Jesus meets him. Jesus meets him there. He doesn't smack him. He doesn't. If that's you. You know, sometimes people in, in coming to Christ, coming to, to faith, feel like I can't come to faith. I can't trust Christ as my Savior. I've got way too many questions about all this. I don't understand it all yet. 
Let me just say, if you got a thimble that says, you know, I don't have it all figured out, but I believe Christ died on the cross for my sins. I got that part. Well, for goodness sakes, take that thimble of faith and you come to him and say, God, here's what I've got. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I don't understand it from there, but, but I offer you this. And I'm saying to you, God will meet you right there. And indeed, he will help your unbelief. It's the God of the Bible who doesn't, isn't all huffy with you, who isn't all, you know, arms crossed going, try harder. No, the God of the Bible who says, come, come, bring, bring your little faith. Come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Incomplete sight at the transfiguration, incomplete faith, not, to, not just the Father. I'd look back at verses 18, 19. There's incomplete faith in the crowd, in the disciples, in the scribes, everywhere. And Jesus meets them there. I close with verses 30 to 32. How interesting. Jesus is on his way through Galilee. People ask, why didn't he want anybody to know? I think he's headed to Jerusalem. I think he's got his face set to Jerusalem. If you're a a C.S. Lewis fan, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you remember the moment when the lion is walking to the stone table? Sorry if you're not into this stuff. You're like, oh man, he's talking about some movie. No, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, the lion has made a, a, a set a date to go to the stone table. The lion is the Christ figure on his way to lay down his life for his followers, and he's going. He's going. The kids don't understand. His followers don't understand. He is going because he has an appointment to keep. I think that's what verse 30 is. He's got an appointment to keep. He tries to tell them. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This is that second warning. And I find verse 32 so interesting. They didn't understand and they're afraid to ask. I think that's a good thing. They didn't ask. Um, I want to just reflect reflect just for a moment. Um, A glimpse into heaven. If you're a child of God, listen, listen very carefully. The, the, The worldview of the Bible describes life beyond this one. That's every bit as real, probably more so than what you experience today. A a future of glory. A future that would fit into verse 3. Brightness. Christ's face shining like the sun. A perfect existence. You know how we say to each other here, you know, how are you? If you haven't seen somebody in a while, how you doing? Fine, whatever we say. If you were at this moment on the Mount of, Transfiguration, Mount of Transfiguration, you went to Moses and Elijah and you said to them, how are you? What would they say? Actually, great. Moses has been long dead. How is he? Just fine, thank you. And doing well. They didn't show up with walkers, did they? They didn't need walkers. They've been in glory for years. Hundreds of years. They don't need walkers. They're on mission for God. They're doing something that matters. They're experiencing glory. Do they know what's going on with redemption? Apparently so. They're showing up to talk to Jesus. I don't want to overstate your, you know, you're heading on mission. I, I, don't, I think there's purpose in heaven. I think there's glory in heaven. And I think it's every bit as real as here. And so I say to us, if you know Christ is your savior, sometimes we, please hear me, we fear death. The message of the Bible is fear not. Fear not. Fear not, child of God. Fear not. Jesus, John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I, I, if I go prepare a place, I'll, I'll come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
So fear not. Oh, I know we fear the transition. But I just know this. The one who already walked through that transition of death, Jesus, he will walk with you in that moment. So fear not. Fear not. Okay? Take that with you. It's a glimpse into heaven. It's a glimpse into the future. I hope you know Christ is your Savior and are therefore ready for that day. Stand with me, please. Would you please, as we close our time here in prayer. Father, thank you for this glorious text and the Jesus that we see here displayed in all of his glory. Thank you for his journey that he's walking to Jerusalem there to be our atoning, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Thank you for this. Uh, I thank you for this church family. As people have come this morning and more will come here shortly. Thank you for this. Father, give us confidence in Christ, confidence in the gospel. We live in this, in this crazy world where so much is going on. Sickness and, and difficulty and death, wars, rumors of wars. Our, our hearts continually, as we read the news, we end up crying out to you, saying, Lord, do you see? We see, we see war in Ukraine, in Russia. We see the war with Israel and Hamas. And we say, oh God, intervene. We see struggles and illnesses, struggles of death. And we say, oh Lord, meet us here. Thank you that you delight to do so. Bless your people as we go from here. Give us much grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you go. Uh, Have a good week. We'll see you very, very soon.